Welcome everyone to a deck hockey focused special presentation, the 50 year history of organized street deck and ball hockey. Tonight in part four, we explore the 2000s, the rise of ball hockey. Scott, what can we look forward to? In this episode, we're going to cover the 2000s, which is really the birth of the sport of ball hockey in the United States. Obviously, you know, there was pockets and areas that were playing it and it was played heavily in Canada and on the world stage. But deck hockey had really been the predominant um you know, variation of our game up until this point. And the 2000s saw a little bit of a recession in the deck hockey world. And then along comes Jamie Cook, who's going to be one of our main speakers in this episode, um, started cool hockey events and really started the ball hockey tournament circuit um, in the States. We also are going to see the revival of the women's game. And Alessandra Glista is going to give us a firsthand perspective uh, of the women's game and its revival from, you know, where it was when we last saw it in the eighties. And it, it took a little bit of a dip since then. And, uh, it's going to take a big jump forward in the two thousands in addition with the help of, of Jamie Cook as well. And then we have a lot of, uh, you know, great players and influencers who played, you know, both deck hockey and ball hockey, um, too many to name and go over right now. But, uh, one of the big ones, obviously Bobby Hauser, um, son of Chris Hauser, who grew up, you know, watching all the deck hockey greats, um, and grew into his own as you know one of the greatest deck and ball hockey players there are so um you know tune in and and listen but uh you know i think we've got a good one for you guys the new millennium brings a decade of change to the sport jamie cook walks us through you know what a lot of people don't know in the early 90s you know after playing in the late 70s through the 80s um in the early 90s around 94 i stopped playing I, i actually moved to the beach and did the beach thing and I didn't touch a stick, you know. And uh, when I left, you know, the tournaments I was playing in, you, you know, you'd have so many good teams. I mean, you, you would go to a tournament, and there was no divisions. It was open. I mean, it was all A teams. You'd have 20, 30, 40 teams. Every single team was great. Every player was great. Every game was a battle. I mean, the play-in games were like the final. I mean, it was, it was incredible. Teams hated each other. Players hated each other. I mean, when you got off the rink, you couldn't even make eye contact. I mean, it, it was that intense back then. It was a much different culture than now. Um, pros and cons for both ways. I kind of missed the old days where it was that intense. Um, did I understand we needed to move away from that pure sport? Um, and, and, you know, and that's part of the history of sport and how we got into the 90s and 2000, or into the 2000s. So, you know, um, after my beach stand, I came back up and started playing again. And the first tournament I went to, I mean, I was really disappointed. It was like four teams. It was in New Jersey, uh, maybe four teams in an upper division and four teams in a lower division. The hockey was terrible. Um, I didn't think too highly of the event. Um, it was just a bad experience. So, you know, I decided I'd run a, a, a tournament in the D.C. area. I partnered, partnered with D.C. Street Hockey, Wayne Barrett. We ran a co-ed tournament and, and then we also ran a men's tournament and we got a lot of compliments of how the tournament went. Um, so, you know, the, Wayne Barrett and I, we co-founded DC Street Hockey and then he kind of moved over to run that and then I kept doing this, the tournaments and, and that's when we started pool hockey events. And, you know, for, for pool hockey events, you know, uh, the, I mean, the true founder of the sport to me is uh, Ray, Mr. Leclerc, uh, who started all this. And then he really paced it on the Chris Hausen and Mark Madden, who kept things going through the good times and the bad times. 
but they really did a good job in the Boston area with Chris, and then of course Pittsburgh with Mark, and then you had Jay Meacham kind of in between trying to do some tournaments here and there, um, and some other guys doing some small stuff. But we really needed um, to revive the sport, a different approach. So you know, when I came back, I kind of looked at what Chris and Mark were doing. I even visited some ball hockey or um, some roller hockey tournaments. I, I looked at other sports, how they ran tournaments. And I really felt like um, to get teams to come down from Canada and to start crossing state lines and to get the team team count up where teams could play and actually meet with their dignity because they were coming and playing against open teams and getting killed, the new teams. So we kind of needed a, a way to bring those players in so they could develop. Then I started trying to look at the business model of making tournaments in fun places, you know, so um, I, I partnered with uh, Turk and Caicos Islands, a guy out there to run a tournament, and we brought two U.S. teams. And I did that um, to try to open up internationally to get U.S. teams out there and to get international teams coming our way. You know, um, Tampa Bay started up with Matt Gary down there, which was a good destination. Um, you know, Terry Cox out in Las Vegas did a great job for that tournament for years. And that was, again, a great location. George Tarantino, more of a transitional or a traditional tournament um, in Harrisburg, but that was a good central location to bring the best eight teams together. So that was a good fit. And then, of course, you had Jay Meacham doing his thing here and there in Jersey and other places. And then I also partnered with a guy named Brian Broly, who's incredible up in Canada with Barry Ball Hockey. And we came to a, a, a backroom handshake that he would send teams to us and I would send teams up there or we'd facilitate that. And to, 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 to this day, that still occurs. And that was very productive. So now we got teams coming from Canada, state te teams from the States going to Canada. We got teams going all over the place. And we also have divisions that allow new players to come into the sport at a lower level. They can play, keep their dignity, get better. And then lo and behold, you know, teams can play in the upper divisions and it just was great for the sport. We also had the co-ed division, which was new, and we had the women's division. And I think all that did, it, it changed the culture where it was no more, the intensity definitely, definitely dropped, but not the level of hockey. And then along with that, lo and behold, I brought in ball hockey. And what really made me bring in ball hockey wasn't because I like ball hockey better than deck hockey. I played both, and, and I'll get into that some, but, uh, I love both, all, kind, all kinds of hockey, but ball hockey, I was really inspired because I wanted, I saw our U.S. national team struggle internationally when I was watching and I, and I was involved. And I really thought that was because we always played deck hockey and, you know, the floating blue line's different, the bigger rank's different, it's a different strategy. It's like softball and baseball. It's, is it the same skill sets? Yes, but it's a different sport really. And you have to play a different strategy. And you know, Mark Madden's freshman team that won goal really was inspirational to me. And um, I wanted all the teams to advance and do well internationally. So I, I felt like, well, what's a, the better way than actually play it? You know, to be able to play the Slovaks and the Czechs and the Canadians, we got to play their game, not just when we go to Worlds, we got to play it consistently and also, you know, keep playing deck as well. So that's how North American Championships came, uh, you know, to, to be and you know and the other thing that people don't understand is like I was one of the people that played both growing up I was very fortunate that we had a place called Woodhaven and they had full contact ball hockey on a huge ice rink that was on cement 
in wow, talk about intense, you know. And I'd also go up to Canada and play with some travel teams and play true ball hockey. Um, but then I played deck hockey at Family Fun Spot in Aston, formerly Tinicum in Haverford, which was one of the first uh, deck rinks in the whole country. And you know, I also played South Jersey ball hockey, which was ball hockey, but on a on asphalt, a little smaller rink. So. I kind of played it all, uh, including on the streets of Leadham Estate, which, which is a, a small town outside of Philadelphia. You know, the old days where you have to move the net when the cars come in and you're using cars as your, your dasher boards, which was pretty cool. Um, so to me, hockey's hockey. I loved it all. My intention with ball hockey was never to diminish that hockey. It was kind of like just to put another form of hockey out there to help grow the sport. And then here we are, we're in the 90s, which is now, you know, the or into the 2000s, you know, in the 90s, like we talked about, there were so many good teams, so many good players. You, you guys could pick 80 teams and every team would be incredible. I mean, it was just really unbelievable how teams. Now in the 2000s, there weren't as many teams because we were going through that growth phase. But what I thought made the 2000s special was it was bipolar. You had some deck hockey teams, you had ball hockey teams, very high level. You know, you had the gamblers early 2000s, you had gods, you had very fast ball hockey teams. Then you had these structured killing machines like the Stars um, and Team Pittsburgh um, on the deck hockey side. And then they're on this ball hockey rank playing and just seeing the different strategies I thought through the 2000s was incredible. And in the later 2000s, um, we just saw so many good teams start to develop. And I think the late 2000s were right back to where we were in the 90s. Um, and, we, and it took that growth period. And, you know, it was a really um, team effort from a lot of different people to get us to that end of 2000s. And, you know, lo and behold, if we look at the sport right now, I think we're in a real good place. I mean, is there still room for improvement? Um, absolutely. But, you know, I haven't been involved in a long time, um, probably, what, 2016. So, I, I mean, me being an outsider looking in now, I, I'm so proud of where the sport's gone and, and uh, where it's going to go. I mean, there's just so many cool things going on right now. Um, but, you know, just if we just put it in perspective for the, the year 2000 uh, to 2010, um, wow, incredible some of the games, especially North American championships. Um, and I will note, I, I did play as a player up at, court, uh, at the Can-Ams, and it was probably my, one of my top two, three experiences during that time to go up there and play again because of the energy of that deck hockey event that Chris runs. And uh, we went up there with the mixed team, and we ended up losing the quarters. I loved it. It was incredible. I mean, just something about that rink, the hair goes up on, on the, the back of your neck, you know. So, um, yeah, it 2000s, I think, was a great uh, decade, but for a lot of different reasons than the, the 90s and the 80s, you know, and the, two, the 2000 to 2020 when you, when you analyze that. So very cool. In the early 2000s, the game was still alive, but was facing a recession. It was time for a new generation of leaders to take the reins. I, I think it was a couple, I think it was numerous things. I think it was definitely roller hockey had an, a, an impact. I also think that we really didn't have any um, national um, strategic plan or we weren't looking at it holistically. And, you know, because it, it was still prospering in the Boston area for the most part and at the P 
Pittsburgh area, but everywhere else it was just dying and it was going bad fast. And some of it was, you know, back in the day you had your league and tournaments actually motivated guys to compete and play more and be on the tournament team and go travel. Um, but then what was, what I noticed when I came back was they, they teams would just be, you'd have six, maybe three or four very good teams and everyone else was set back. And those teams would just come and get absolutely humiliated. And most, a lot of these guys were trying to go to sports. So they're new players. So now do they want to come back to the second tournament? No. So we have to figure out, well, how do we bring the new players in and let them leave with their dignity, but still let the good players compete and, and get better. And that was a challenge in the beginning, but I think somewhere in the late nineties, we lost our way with that. Um, but then we right-sized it. Uh, and then Roller, you know, um, deck hockey, I mean, Roller's dying now. So I think people came back. That, that was just a fact. So, so correct me if, if I'm getting this straight, but pre kind of 2000, there weren't a lot of these, say, BC novice, you know, rec divisions. It was, oh, you went in and, and you either got beat 15 nothing and, you know, went yeah. home or you, you didn't participate if you were starting out. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. You know, and I, and I have mixed feelings like that. I would love to go back to the 80s where, you know, you just go to a tournament. But the timing wasn't right for that. We, there, wasn't just an, there wasn't enough A teams. Now there is. They can have an A tournament like a Harrisburg just A on that weekend and get enough teams. Uh, in, the early nine, in the early 2000s, you just couldn't do that. And when we first tried to grow it with guys just getting humiliated, it just wasn't allowing us to grow it. So we had to go into the different – rec and co-ed and uh you know novice and every other division that's been come up with since um to make it more appeasable for guys to come in but you know you look at some of these teams now that are moving up a lot of those teams were the rec teams and guys got they played in their league they got better and better and then they could play in the the, the a or the b tournaments um now what i tried to do is i would come and uh, you know just like everything 50 percent of people like it 50 percent hate it i always liked playing into your division because then guys can't bring a loaded team and say, yeah, we're a C team and they kill everybody. I always liked having an AB, you, you play against each other. The teams that have the most points move on, the other teams go down. And then they, and then if they did take a beating on Saturday, they'll leave with their dignity on Sunday because they played against teams there in their skill level. So there's no perfect format out there. Um, I'm just happy where the sport's going, and it's been really a group effort from a lot of different people that are still doing it now. Like, I sit back now. I'm not involved at all. I just love to think, like, what we're doing today, the different things people are doing now. It's just, it's just great for the sport. And I'm sure if, if uh, Chris was on, the, on, the, on here or Mark or even Ray was still alive, everyone would be proud where the sport's grown. It's not, it's no one's vision. It's just kind of evolved organically to where we're at today. So it's cool to watch. No, I, I think you're being a little bit humble there, Jamie. Um, I, I, you know, I think as someone that, 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 had the opportunity to play against some of the great teams in the nineties, you know, when I was still extremely young getting asked to go with the Sabres or, or the force, um, you know, I, I think um, we underestimate the impact of roller hockey on our sport. Um, you know, I, I think some of you may know I had the pleasure of playing major league roller hockey, right? So I played professional roller hockey um, for a short period of time. Um, and, 
it still, in my mind, was never as good as ice hockey or ball hockey. But what it did do, um, while I don't think it impacted us, um, it impacted those freshman kids, right? Because instead of having to go on an ice rink or worrying about a pond freezing, you know, with the advent of, and you guys will all chuckle, but we still call them rollerblades, but rollerblades was a specific brand of inline skate, right? Now everyone calls them rollerblades. But kids could be out front instead of playing street hockey, they were playing roller hockey out front of their house, right? Just by, by being able to be on blades. So a lot of those freshmen, which is ironic, because now if you look at the master's teams um, and you're able to, you know, you, you're allowed to have three 37-year-olds. Well, I can tell you the U.S. has a hard time finding 37-year-olds because there was a lull when kids were just all playing roller hockey, right? There was no ball hockey. And, and what I think that that had – impacted on our generation in the 2000s was it was kind of what um Silo and uh, Tommy alluded to was um those teams those power teams from the 90s and there were a lot of great ones in the rivalries those guys started getting older right and they started having families and and hockey really you know didn't so those of us that were kind of on the cusp of of you know being freshmen or just breaking into playing in the men's leagues you know we had nowhere to go so you know, I, I, you know, I can contribute, you know, the mid-Atlantic shock was a, you know, in my mind, um, and, and Tommy even played was at the end was that as good as that was for some of us, um, it was to what Jamie's point about because teams couldn't field all guys because people had started dropping off you had to start forming super teams, right? So it was a bunch of Long Island guys, a bunch of Jersey guys, some Boston guys, and then you would play and go to tournaments. And, you know, we obviously wanted to pick all the best guys. So that what did that do, though? It diluted down, you know, a Jersey having a team or Long Island having a team or Boston have a te having a team. So it definitely thinned the pool in regards to the, the good A teams that you played. Um, you know, and, and I, I have to give uh, – you know, Bobby, some credit. He's one of the few that I can remember, um, you know, put, building a team and, and bringing them to the A and, and maybe, you know, having at least being true to, to his, his region and, and coming and saying, hey, I'm just bringing my guys, whether we're going to get our asses kicked or not, um, you know, and they were always competitive, but I knew he knew enough people to put to put the best team he wanted to on the rank. But in, instead, you know, he was true to his form and said, I'm just bringing guys from my area, from my whatever. And the good news is I'm starting to see that, right? Uh, you know, I, I had the pleasure of doing that a little bit with the Supreme. Um, you know, it was a bunch of Jersey guys, um, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, you know, we, we could never be coached correctly. Um, but then they then they evolved that, right? Then then when, when, when the Gamblers and, and Supreme didn't fold, that team kind of collapsed. And the, there were enough young Jersey kids that said, you know what we're good enough if we put teams together and I think they had a tryout with 50 guys and now have two teams right so if you look at the uh, the, the U.S. hockey circuit whether it be deck hockey or ball hockey we kind of have returned to that team format from the 90s where there are very few teams that are a combination of players from all over you may have one or two guys but you know you got the stars right i'm sorry you got you got the the um saints you got you know bobby's team that travels you still have um you know the gods now from pittsburgh you have the warriors from new jersey right so we're starting to build those regional teams and as a result you're starting to see that rival the rivalries that I think existed in the nineties that kind of didn't in the two thousands um, start to come back, which it, it, in my opinion is nothing but good for the sport. Cause you need rivalry. Um, 
to make it competitive. Y2K had come and gone, and so had the deck hockey of the 90s, which was rapidly being replaced with the five-on-five ball hockey game we see today. The transition was kind of by default. I mean, obviously, Jamie, you know, starting that, and we would go to support. Um, I think for some of us, you know, Long Island guys, didn't really have a choice, really. We, wanted to, we traveled so much, and once the tournament started to navigate, you know, towards ball hockey, and, you know, Bobby, I, you know, I didn't know he was going to be here, so it's a pleasant surprise. But, you know, fortunately for me, you know, someone like Bobby would go to a lot of tournaments as they started to grow up. And, you know, if you wanted to go, there wasn't really many tournaments to play. The deck hockey ones were kind of, you know, a couple of limits there, maybe – uh, a couple other ones along the way. So it was more by default. And I don't think we uh, really after the North Americans, as far as a group, the Long Island guys, I don't think we adjusted very well. Um, that's why we didn't really have any teams later on in, in the years, you know, so, but. Well, and, and, and still, I, I think you were one of the ones to first be exposed, you know, from uh, back in the day, you know, Quorum being as lead as they were, um, you know, if, if you don't mind me sharing a memory, I can remember, um, to Jamie's point, we had a, a team called Mayfair, and they were very well known in our area. And they were behemoths of men. I mean, if you looked at them top to bottom, they were, they were gigantic. They could move the ball, but they played ball hockey. And, and as Jamie said, they were used to playing full contact. So, uh, you know, as you talk about the teams in the 90s and the competitiveness, Corum being one of the nastiest teams came down and played them um, in their rank. And, you know, so I'll defer to you, but as I remember it, because I traveled there because it was, you know, it was about a 45 minute ride, but it was, a, it was very well known in the circuit in and around where we were. Um, the Mayfair did a pretty good number on Corum, right? I mean, it was close at first. And then I think at the end, you know, it was, it wasn't, you know, five to one, seven, two, something like that. They, they, I don't remember the exact score, but it was kind of pretty obvious that the, the difference in game made a difference to Corum. So then Corum said, okay, we came and kind of tested you, uh, you know, why don't you come and play deck? So I remember it being freezing because there were trash cans that they had started bonfires on and Quorum had come to Aston, <laughs> Pennsylvania uh, and Mayfair came and it was in the winter. Um, and I'm telling you, it, 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 it felt like <laughs> it felt like an NHL game with as many people that were crowded, you know, crowded around the rink or whatever. Um, and Quorum beat them up pretty bad. You know what I mean? And again, it was, it was Mayfair's inability to adjust to the deck hockey game. Um, they did play in a few tournaments um, that, that some of you may remember, but they never fared as well as what I believe is truly a team that they were because they just could not make the adjustment from ball hockey to deck hockey. And I think that's a good, a great story. And I, I remember, I remember things years ago better than I do yesterday at my age, but that, that ball hockey game, what's interesting is Corm, that game was very tight. The reason Mayfair won was all power plays. Yep. Every goal was a power play because they had the big rank and they had set plays and that's how they beat them. And that's really how the Canadians beat us now too, uh, when they do beat us. So yeah, that's a pretty cool story. I remember that. Yeah, I was gonna when you said first when you said Mayfair, that's the first thing I thought of because that was <laughs> that was brutal. Like Frankie and Louie and a couple of those guys were like towards the tail end of their playing anyway. And I think by the time, was it in the finals that we played them? <clears throat> I don't know if it was in the finals that we played them, but when we 
I don't think we made it to the finals, but whenever we went, we had like guys sitting on the, we had like three, four guys out by the time we got to like whatever our last game was. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was pretty rough. And I, I don't know, you know, obviously that was the first version of any ball hockey and you know, it's, I don't think it's the same, you know, the same as that version, you know, with Mayfair clubbing the, the, the crap out of people. But, um, but it was definitely something that the quorum guys were not, were not able to adjust to, that's for sure. Right after, soon, really wasn't much further after that that a lot of them didn't play anymore. Now, Tommy, what, what, what is your remembrance of going to the first couple North Americans um, – you know, in differences as opposed to, you know, maybe the deck hockey tournaments that were around that time or even what North Americans looks like today? Well, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to, to start out in the early 90s with some of the Seahawks guys. So I got to see a lot of the greats from the, the 80s and early 90s. I played deck hockey for a good 15, 16 years before I ever even set foot on a ball hockey court. Um, we formed the Stars in the late 90s. And I'd say most of our primes were probably – late 90s to the mid to late 2000s. Um, it seemed to me that the, the ball hockey came in, I think it was 06 was the first North Americans. Uh, you know, at that point, I was 35 years old. Um, we were probably the best team in the country at that point. We walked in, we, we won the tournament, and I thought it was a pretty easy transition. But eventually, you know, some of our guys started having kids and getting older, retiring. Uh, I think Silo won the next two North Americans, so they had some success as well, but then their guys started falling off. Uh, I think the biggest thing was age and some of the Canadian teams coming down. Um, like Mike and Jamie were saying, like they play a different style. We'd, get, we'd go in the box, they'd score some goals. By the late 2000, like 8, 9, 10, I, I think we started to decline a little bit. Um, but one great memory I have, and Silo was there, uh, was the 2011 Harrisburg. We were all 40 years old. The stars had fallen apart. Long Island fell apart. Pittsburgh fell apart. Uh, so we took five stars, five Long Island guys, five Pittsburgh guys, and we're all 40, and we won the one Harrisburg, which I thought was a pretty good accomplishment, 40-year-old, big rink like that. Um, so we proved that we could adjust to it. I think we just kind of caught it at the tail end of our careers. Um, you know, we've – all gone on to play masters tournaments and, you know, we've had some success, but we still have a little bit of trouble with the, with the Canadian teams. And, um, you know, I think one of the things with our generation is we're all 50 years old and we're still playing, you know, so a lot of guys have seen us play for 10, 15 years, but it wasn't even our prime, you know, it's kind of late yeah. in our careers, but we're still playing eight tournaments. And, and thanks to Jamie, where we're still playing masters tournaments. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a, it's a different generation. You don't see a lot of the guys from the, 70s and 80s who played until 50 years old, except maybe Chris. Bob, you want to jump in? Obviously, you have a little bit of a unique perspective. You grew up at the rink, and uh, you obviously saw all these guys playing, and then eventually towards the tail end of, uh, of this decade, obviously jumped on and, and started playing against them. Um, what was that transition like? What do you kind of remember as a kid growing up watching these guys and then eventually transitioning and playing with them and against them? Uh, I mean, I loved, like, obviously, I'm the son of Chris Hauser, so I was always at the rink, and it was, like, my favorite time of the year was these tournaments, and uh, when I first started playing, I think 2004, I formed my own team, and uh, I was getting killed by everybody for being Hauser's son. Uh, the Rams didn't like me. Yeah. 
New Jersey River Rats. I think that was a team. They didn't like me. And I was just a kid. I, I wasn't good until, like, maybe 2006. So I was getting fucking shit kicked out of me. Oh, I just swore shit. Um, I was getting uh, I was getting beat up bad. And then uh, I eventually played on the Rams. And um, my favorite matches were probably against the Stars. So I remember watching them a lot. Like, that's when I was really focused on hockey was – Greater Boston Stars, Lemonster Elite was really good for a while, and the Rams. And there was a couple, uh, craziest game, or one of the craziest games, uh, Tommy, I think you were, I think it was against you guys, when uh, Carrillo turned around off a of faceoff because he was talking to a fan. Yeah. That was elite. Fall back and scored. Elite. Was that against you? No, it was, it was against the Star, Stars Elite, right, I believe? It was yeah, a, I think so. James, it was a playoff game. Yes, because James had just switched over to the Stars and the yeah. Elite beat them on that or tied them or whatever it was on that Credio arguing with a fan bowl. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was awesome just being able, to, being able to play with, I mean, against everyone who I like. Like, I watched those, those tournaments religiously, and I was, like, the only kid that was a Rams fan, like me and, like, three other people. And then when I finally was, I think 2007 I was my first tournament on the Rams. Uh, it was just, it was fun. Like, I think 2007 and 2010 were probably my favorite years of playing. Now I lose all the time, so it's not as fun. With the U.S. transition to ball hockey, success had begun on the international level. In 2006, the U.S. juniors took home gold, and in 2009, a highly dominant Canadian team was upset on an international stage. Yeah, the tournament was in Italy. And it was like a super dope setup, but um, I mean, it was Italy, so there wasn't a lot of fans, but it was, uh, so there, I think there was eight teams in it and the top four went to the A and the entire A division all tied each other in like the craziest ways like you can imagine. Like, I think we tied, I remember we tied Czech Republic with a second left we tied Canada with a minute left and we blew a lead against Slovakia with like 20 seconds. And we, uh, the tiebreaker was goals four at the time. So we got into the gold medal against Slovakia. And I think we won that game three or four to two. And uh, I think it was good because it was the first, wasn't, wasn't only the first gold medal, but it was just the first medal in general because USA has been coming in fourth for the past four or five years. And just winning that, I thought put like, you know, like now we're like, hey, like, you know, USA can actually play the sport. So I think we're, at the time, like the worldwide view of us was like, oh, they're good. They're just not that great sort of thing. And then uh, 2009 was probably the next big one, which is that's still part of the 2000s. And uh, we knocked off Canada and probably the I think my opinion, I thought that was a bigger upset than winning the gold medal. Uh, that that week, that week was very special. Uh the, the thing that stood out to me right away was with the chemistry of the team. Uh, there was no one who was about themselves in that locker room. Uh, the leaders were Eric Schultz and Bill Allen, uh, Kobe Sweat, very selfless kind of guys. Uh, so we supported the younger players. And, you know, it was like the coming out for Bobby, Denny, Hildo. Uh, those guys really stood out that tournament. And, and uh, the team was built properly for a big rink. So we were – maybe the fastest team in the tournament and really paid dividends in the Canada win. Um, I knew then that there was a, probably a gold medal in the U S uh, if the team was, was built properly that, that week. Uh, so for me, it will always be special. Um, got to know Tyson that week really well. I'd never met him before. Uh, so we became real good friends after that. 
Uh, so many good things happened that week for our country in general. Uh, and obviously the results on the rink. Steve Gregory scores in overtime, and I feel like I'm floating for a month. It was unbelievable. And uh, we actually came really close to winning that tournament. Uh, we, we, had, we were up on uh, India 4-2. to two. India was really good. We were up on them 4-2 to two also. Uh, let that game slip away. It was kind of a young team loss. That's how close it was. That was a semifinal game. And if we win that game, we're in the gold medal game. And I, I honestly don't think we would have lost that gold medal game just based on momentum. Uh, Chris Hauser did an outstanding job of coaching that team. I can't say enough about him. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a big week for, for our country, in my opinion. For all those just, reasons I just stated. And, and just to kind of clarify for those, those who don't know, and Bobby touched, touched on it, um, so maybe we can edit it in a little bit. Um, but if, if I remember correctly, Canada was either coming off of or they had won like two or three of the last four or five world championships. So they were a powerhouse. And you guys actually were in the B division, right, and had to play yeah. your way into yeah. the A playoffs. Yeah. So it, to even make it more of an underdog, like you guys weren't even let in. The, the, to, to give people an idea who see it now, um, the U.S. wasn't even allowed in the A pool of the right. world championships. They had to play their way in. And then here you are, obviously, playing a team that, you know, was probably a favorite to win the entire tournament. Canada's always a powerhouse in any type of hockey, um, you know, you can think of. And then, um, you know, obviously, like you mentioned, you know, Gregory, you know, sends you guys obviously past them um, and makes people believe that obviously you guys can win at a world championship. Yeah. Uh, I remember when, when that tournament started, they had to be opening ceremonies. So we go up and sit in the stands. They threw us out of the stands and told us we had to go sit in another part of the rink because it was only for the A-pool teams. And boy, when we made it to the A-pool and beat Canada, I, I remember talking to some guys and pointing to the spot in the stands. I'm like, I wonder if they'll let us over there now. Like, it was just uh, – it was magic. It was a magical week. Uh, one of those times where everything just comes together. Everyone on the team was together. Uh, I can't say enough about that. It was, uh, it was such a great time. As the East Coast transitions to ball hockey and teams jockey for position, a decades-old deck hockey rivalry was still alive and well in Massachusetts. Well, for me, I mean, when I started out there, like I said, I started with the Seahawks and they kind of had a rivalry with the Rams, but they were, they were getting older at that time. So I learned that, you know, the Rams were the team to beat. If you're going to go to Lemonster, and we always considered the Nationals to be the biggest tournament, you know, maybe Can-Ams was second. Um, but that's what we shot for. I mean, we grew up in Boston, so those were our big tournaments. And, uh, you know, back then, you know, there, there were other teams. I mean, I always felt like there were eight or ten teams that could win. I'm talking late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, but it always ended up see, seeming to be the stars and the Rams in the semis or finals for a big game. Um, yeah, I know that for us, we had to get over the hump. I mean, the, I, I spent a lot of the nineties losing to the Rams, um, you know, and we lost a lot to, to Silo and Long Island in the, the late nineties as well. Uh, when we finally won, I think it was 99 was our first nationals. Um, uh, I think we believed that we could do it. And then we went on a little run for about five or six years. We went to maybe 30 tournaments and won, I don't know, 20 of them. Uh, and we were probably in the finals for every other one that we didn't win. Uh, it took us beating them to believe that we could, we could actually win. And it's something, I think it's a learned thing. And to speak to, to Mike's point, um, you know, and going back to the, the roller hockey thing a little bit, 
I felt like, you know, there were always eight or 10 teams in the late nineties, early two thousands that could win these tournaments through the lunatics, the force, Long Island, Pittsburgh, Raiders, Rams, even elite was pretty good stars. Um, but I think the lull happened maybe in the mid two thousands. And, and we yeah. had, we had a little bit of a gap behind us. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons we're still playing masters is there's no one seven <laughs> or 40 or 42. That, that was the roll of hockey gap right there. Um, so, you know, it did start to die and Jamie did, did reinvent it with the cool hockey events, but those early late nineties, early two thousands, I think was kind of like a, you know, a glory day of, you know, of the sport. Uh, Bobby was there watching a lot of these games. And I, I think every single game we had with the Rams was a one or two goal game in, in either direction. And uh, they were like a measuring stick for us. A lot of penalties, a lot of fights in those games that I watched back when hockey was hockey. I, I remember as the Stars games were always great. I mean, I, I go back. I mean, I started playing with the Lemister Saints in the 90s, and we had a rivalry at the Rams, and then we all ended up pretty much all ended up on the Rams uh, not long after that. And then playing against the Stars and playing against the shot was with the Dreamers first. I mean, I, I go back to that with the Dreamers and Quorum. And then the Stars games were always great. And um, always, like Tommy said, one goal games. And and you never knew who was going to win. It was always one or two plays that made a difference in those games. Uh, you know, and I think for a lot of teams, the measuring stick was the Rams. It was for the Saints. We didn't we didn't win a tournament until we beat them. We had to beat the Rams to win a tournament. That, that that's propelled us once we beat them. We started winning tournaments. So I think that's always been the case. Uh, now it's the gods. I mean, uh, I laugh because some of the gods guys get all, I see on social media, they get all upset when people don't like them. They're like, oh, everybody doesn't like us. You shouldn't like, you don't want right. people. Right. I love the fact that to this day, there are still people who hate, me because I play on the Rams or hate the Rams because we beat them in some tournament in 1993. Stratty, I mean, he, he, every time I see him, he's got some story about how we, we beat him in this and it still eats him up 20 years later. I mean, that's, that's great. I love that. And I try telling those guys like, you gotta love it. Embrace it. That's the best thing about it is that people hate you enough where they want to beat you. Like they care enough about that. You're that good that they don't like you. I mean, I'm sure Silla went through that in the late nineties when they won, I don't know eight or nine tournaments in a row or pretty close to it uh, people don't like you and that's okay I mean that's part of of competitive sports and I think that's an important part of coming back and uh, I think Mike hit that on the head it's, it's starting to come back again and I think that was a great part of the, the, the Rams Saints uh, rivalry in the 90s and the Rams Stars rivalries in the 2000s were great too because I think there was a lot of uh, I don't know if it's hatred but there was a lot of anger on the rank uh, during those games and a lot of emotion and, you know, uh, you know, at the time you don't like the guy, but I, I've grown to become good friends with a lot of those guys on those, those stars teams that I played with them and played against them and got to know them over the last 30 years or so. So I think those, those rivalries were incredibly important to the sport and they kept it going uh, because people came to those games. I mean, there were still tons of people up in the stands for those, those games between the Rams and the stars and, and elite and, and those other teams that he mentioned as well. In the early years, the women's game was nothing but successful. But in the 2000s, it was on life support. I talked about in uh, the other podcast discussion about the, the 2000s, and I, I brought up how I did that, um, the co-ed tournament. And co-ed in D.C. is actually huge. And it was, it was big when I got here. That's all they had. So that's pretty much what I played in. And then there was a league down in Virginia for men's that would go down to, which was D.C. Street Hockey. So 
when I had that tournament, um, the women um, came to me that were playing and um, they were mostly, they actually were ladies that were playing in the Philly area. And they said, Jamie, if you're gonna run tournaments, can you promise to, to run women's tournaments? And I said, yes, I absolutely will. Okay, so um, at the time there was only three teams, three women's teams in the whole country. And they would still play. You, got, you had to give them credit. They kept it alive. Um, there was a team in Boston, a team in um, Long Island, New York, and then a team at Philly, Jersey. And they were, that was it. And they were good. They had three good teams and they played. And what we did was um, I started thinking about, well, how can I do this? I don't have many teams. I got to create excitement. So I started reaching out to uh, the International Ball Hockey Federation and I said, listen, why don't we do this? Why don't we do some kind of Canada-US challenge? I'll run the tournament. It could be like in Buffalo or Niagara or somewhere. And we'll have these three US teams play three of your teams. Well, um, what, what happened was uh, they came back and said, well, Jamie, we're going to have the men's World Cup, World Championships in Pittsburgh would you run the women's World Cup, the first one in Pittsburgh? And I said, oh, absolutely. So then it started growing. So we brought these three US teams and actually Philly combined with New York and then Boston brought their team down. And then we threw a get together a team um, from DC along with a goalie from California and um, I think a couple of Pittsburgh players, Lisa Bach actually was on the team. She, she carried the team. Um, and then, and then we played, it was great. So Switzerland showed up, Czech Republic showed up, Canada brought three teams, uh, Slovak, and I, I think Austria. So we had the first Women's World Cup and it was absolutely an emotional experience. A lot of tears, a lot of things going on. And then, you know, we start, we obviously started running tournaments at North Americans with the women's division you got to give the girls credit because, because um, you know, back then they, they wanted to combine the best talent that they want to play with each other. Right. And, but they knew to keep this growing, they're going to have to bring teams that are organically from their area. They can't build super teams and that's what they did. And they stuck with the plan. And then because we had this partnership with Brian Broly up in Canada, he would be sending women's team down, which gave us the international team, which made it exciting. So we had one or two or three Canada teams coming down. And, and the ladies stuck to the plan to, to form as many teams as they could. And I think we had nine women's teams the first year, and they played into an A and a B. And then it kept growing. I mean, and Jason Kelly and JJ Devaney have done a great job with the women. Your event up north holds the women's event, I think, sometimes. And it's just grown. And, you know, and I left the women's, uh, actually the plaque above me um, is from the 2017. So I was, I was the general manager for that team. Um, and, and I knew the national program was, would, would create excitement. So we had tryouts, you know, and camps and it, it allowed women to have something, to have a goal and, and where they didn't in the past. And I think that was a big part of the growth as well. Um, but really, it always comes down to people getting involved. And on the, the women's side, you know, wow. I mean, I had so much help uh, from Rich and Lisa Wagner to, you know, Alessandra um, and then Jason Kelly getting involved. And I mean, 
Gina up in Long Island and Mary up in Boston and um, you know so many people and 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 they, the dedication and the sacrifice that they made to try to grow that women's division to get it to where it is today, which is a pretty cool place. Um, now they're building the super teams because they can. Um, uh, is is really uh, more of an emotional thing for me than the men's side. You know, I love both, but the women's was something I never really planned to get into, got into, but it really filled my heart um, with where it went and where it's still going. You know, and it's funny I watch. The, the world games and you know I don't even know the players now personally but um so I'm more like a fan and I'm watching on the stream and I'm just you know probably their biggest fan and they don't even know it you know but it's really heartwarming where uh Jason took it and now where Alessandra and and others are taking it and you know the women are <laughs> the men could learn from the women right now I think the women are are you know um I love all of our U.S. teams. And I think they're all good, but the women have really stepped it up in their their major force in their division now. And when they walk on that rank, I think Canada and Slovakia and the Czech Republic uh, are very concerned about the U.S. program and, and, and how good they are, um, and they should be because there's some really good players. So, you know, and there were synergy, synergies between the co-ed and the women's. The co-ed is kind of like allows the women to get into the sport, kind of like the lower divisions with the men. And then they and then they get into the travel hockey on the women's side. So that was kind of the same thing, but a little bit different business model. Um, so, you know, the shape of the women's sport, so happy where it's at. Um, I, do, um, I do hope um, we continue to have equity between the men's and women's uh, programs and, and the, you know, how they're supported. And I think it is happening in the US and other places. And I hope that continues and we'll see where the sport goes. But the women's sport is unbelievable. Totally stoked where it's at. Alessandra Glista gives us a firsthand insight into the status of the women's game in the 2000s. Yeah, so there really wasn't too much out there. I remember starting out um, as a kid, I played on um, boys like youth teams. So I started really late in my career uh, for some people, I guess. Um, so, you know, early teens and I was a soccer player and then kind of a soccer goalie and then transitioned to ball hockey goalie, but there really wasn't much out there. So we started, um, I started in cadets and I played with the boys. Um, and then, you know, from there, I kind of, um, there was opportunities at hockey town in, in Saugus, um, Massachusetts, um, for co-ed. And so without that opportunity, I don't know if I would have continued to play, but because there was co-ed. Um, you know, I got to play with a ton of really great people, especially up here in, um, you know, the Northeast with tournament players and things like that. Um, as it evolved, I started playing with tournament guys. So a lot of the stars players, um, played up where I played and, and so I kind of evolved as a goalie and, you know, filled in wherever I could, which was all men's leagues here. Um, and so from there, you know, I mean, there was such great players honestly like you know especially back in the early um 2000s I would say is like you know the prime for me at least um getting to play with those men um and then I learned about some opportunities as far as um you know women's tournament um I know that you know cool hockey has been really great about like giving um creating opportunities I guess 
Um, so being, I kind of switched to roller hockey for a little bit because there were a lot of opportunities to play in tournaments for roller hockey um, and some opportunities to play with women in roller hockey, which I didn't really have um, with deck hockey. Um, and so, yeah, we, we found out about a tournament that Cool Hockey was, was putting together um, in conjunction with also finding out that there would be um, potentially a Team USA for the first time officially going to Germany. So that kind of got me back into ball hockey. I had kind of started with ball hockey, transitioned to ice hockey and roller hockey, and then kind of came back um, in the early 2000s um, with the ball hockey um, and the opportunities that were there as far as tournaments go. And it was super small back then too. I think maybe there were four teams, um, one from Boston, which I actually ironically didn't play with them because they were already established. So I ended up filling in and um, kind of competing with the DC team at the time. So that was like my breakthrough. It was like, you know, being part of this DC team and getting to meet all these new girls. And um, I think there was probably a team from New York there. Um, and so, yeah, it was pretty small and a team from Philly there as well. So it was pretty small back then. Um, and then, you know, it started to evolve. I mean, I don't want to get too far into the future here, but like, you know, nowadays there's um, two to three divisions at, you know, these cool hockey events and, um, and other women's events that, that are run. So it's, it's kind of cool that it's evolved from the four teams to, to something bigger than that. Um, but yeah, like I would say a lot of the times that I played, it would be with the men's teams. And, and because of that, and because I think they took me under their wing and I had really good coaches, I was able to kind of excel um, with the men, which I'm really grateful for, obviously. Um, but yeah, that was kind of like that early 2000s, like where, where things were. I think what was happening, especially with the women's circuit, was that we did attend the tournaments as many as we could, actually. Um, many of the girls, I would say it was very raw um, in the beginning. Like, so 2007 was the first um, women's Team USA, and we were just a bunch of different athletes from all over the place, but really varying skill levels. Like we had, you know, field hockey players that um, really never ever played ball hockey before. And we were kind of coming from all these different areas um, and competing actually internationally. So we had very like new raw talent, um, super passionate, but really good coaches. Um, Gwen um, Lemieux was one of the first coaches for Team USA. Um, and she was really instrumental along with Jamie Cook. Um, they had kind of put together that first uh, real opportunity for us to play internationally. But also like for the first time, I feel like organize the women's game. So we kind of like, we're always like, you know, ragtag, like, you know, try to put different teams together. But for the first time, I think there was, we were trying, they were trying to implement structure, which I think is super important. Um, to kind of like, you know, get the exposure, get the baseline um, coaching, because I feel like even nowadays, um, you know, women are coming from all different sports, which is the great thing about ball hockey, right? Like, you don't have to be like an ice hockey player and then transition, you can be, um, but you could be a soccer player, you could be really any kind of athlete. Um, and I think that the thing that was missing for a long time was like just the structure, like these girls weren't really coached and, you know, they really love the sport and they love the community, which is really awesome. I think that's why people, you know, stay in the sport for so long is because of that community. But I think that, you know, Jamie Cook and, and Gwen and, and those in the coaching staff there, like just started to put structure to the game, which was awesome. And I think that started to, you know, bring more people in and bring more interest in and, 
um, you know, Jason Kelly with the tournaments and, and having them grow as well. The late 2000s saw the establishment of the major A tournaments we know today, the North Americans and the Super Bowl bye week in Harrisburg. George Tarantino walked us through. Uh, a local rink that I was playing at asked me if I could run a tournament. They knew that I traveled around and knew a lot of people. Uh, so I did have a tournament uh, one year. I started uh, with just the lower division thing. And then after that happened, I, I really had a desire to throw another A at that time of the year. Uh, I realized the week before the Super Bowl was like wide open and no one does anything. So I decided to try and host my own major A. And Harrisburg... I got to say, it doesn't exist without Jamie Cook the way it is now because he's the one who convinced a couple of the top real A teams to come to the tournament. And the, f the first major A I had was really, really good. Uh, so it's been great since then. As a new generation of leaders emerge in the sport, it's not without the help and guidance from the founding fathers. You know, I was lucky. Um, I could pick up the phone and I had a mentor. Chris Hauser would pick up and talk to me. Mark Madden would talk to me. Jay was very supportive. A guy by the name of Wayne Weaver was a mentor. I mean, I had a lot, a lot of support. Sometimes in the public, we, some of us would argue, and I think people thought that we didn't get along, but that was never the case. Um, Chris and Mark and Jay were highly um, supportive of what I was doing, even though the vision was different than, that, than what was going on. So I don't think people ever understood that what was going behind the scenes, there was a lot of talk between Chris and I, um, even up people up in Canada. So the support mechanism for me to, to, to do what I wanted to try to do was there. Um, it was certainly not just me. And if I didn't have that support, listen, if the old guard, like Silo did always tease me, he was very good at that. Um, if the old guard didn't- You made it too easy. If the old guard didn't jump on board with what we were trying to do, it would never have happened. Because in that transition, I would have the new players. I wouldn't have the old players. I still would be, at the end of the day, the same uh, number of players. So, you know, I just want to be real clear with that, that um, who was involved behind the scenes. Because I don't think those guys get credit for what they did in the 70s and 80s and 90s. But they were a part of the 2000 success, too. And that concludes part four of the fifth years of organized street hockey, the 2000s the rebirth of ball hockey. Scott, what does the next decade bring us? Well, ball hockey is in full swing with teams, tourneys, and locations completely committed to the sport. We see our men's and women's teams compete for medals at the highest level possible on the international stage. The women's game continues to grow, and with the help of a, a newly formed USA ball hockey organization, we see growth across our entire country.